This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. It's the Wednesday, January 5th, 2023 edition of the show. Coming up in the second hour of the show, Dr. Craig Medeer reflects on the 165th anniversary of the American Printing House of the Blind. Oof, that's a long time. And John Lepke discusses the presence of Parasports at the upcoming Canada Winter Games on Prince Edward Island. We'll also have a fun roundtable chat with Mike Ross, who's also going to read you the weather in a couple of minutes. But first, let's get to the regional news update. Beginning in British Columbia, five people have died in BC avalanches this month. An avalanche researcher expects the unstable snowpack to remain for the rest of the season. Pascal Hagelet says the weak layer of crystals buried near the bottom will not get warm enough to change. that it's preserved, like it's not overly affected by current weather conditions anymore. It's just too deep in the snowpack. Over to the prairies, the city of Winnipeg may match statutory holiday time with the cultural and religious priorities of its staff. City Council will consider asking the Manitoba government to change its employment standard code to allow employees to substitute existing statutory holidays for days that are most meaningful to them. If Council approves the motion, the city would ask the province to consult the community on other ways the code of conduct could be more inclusive. Mayor Scott Gillingham says the province should explore legislation to make statutory days more flexible, but stressed that senior government has the jurisdiction to decide what changes are made. I included that story because I think that is so, so interesting. I think it's a great idea. And this will be the topic of my news panel pitch on Friday alongside Michelle McQuig and Joey DeGupta. So a little preview for you there for Friday's show. Stop by at about 9.15 a.m. Eastern time on Friday or download the podcast or just keep listening perpetually 24 hours a day. Stay locked on accessible media. Over to Ontario, Toronto police are dealing with a wave of violent incidents on public transit. John Kennedy files this report. Police say they got the call around 3.30 p.m. on Monday regarding an alleged assault in the East End. They say there was another swarming attack by teenagers, this time between a group of boys aboard a Toronto Transit Commission bus and two TTC employees who were on board and were allegedly assaulted by the boys. Police managed to arrest four teen suspects, laying various assault charges on each of them. But it's not the only incident to make riders think twice, as a random stabbing attack took place on a streetcar. Toronto police say a woman in her 20s was stabbed in the head and face while riding a streetcar and another woman has been arrested. Police say she was taken to hospital and is in staple non-life-threatening condition. Duty Inspector Lori Cranenberg says police are aware of the ongoing issues with safety on the transit system and say that riders should be aware of their surroundings at all times during their commute. John Kennedy, The Canadian Press. And finally, in the Atlantic provinces, PEI potato formers say a new report on how Ottawa dealt with an outbreak of potato warts shows the 2021 decision to the halt exports to the United States went too far. 
Farmers also say they want remaining restrictions lifted for farms where the fungus has not been found. The report from the International Advisory Panel on Potato Wart found that while potato wart has been identified in clusters, most of PEI is considered a pest-free area. However, the Canadian Food Inspection Agency's Director of Operations, Lynn McIver, says that more investigation is needed to ensure the fungus is controlled before eliminating remaining restrictions. That's your look at the regional news update. Brock Richardson is here for a sports chat. Brock, a couple interesting stories brewing in the world of para-sport, and you want to start with the uh, para-alpine championships going on in Sweden. Oh, we have another medal added to Canada's total, which I believe is now up to five. I'd have to actually count. I'll give you an actual count uh, tomorrow. Uh, But Natalie Wilkie wins her third medal at the Games. Uh, This is her second gold medal. So she's having an outstanding uh, world championships, which is uh, always good. And, you know, Canada always gets this, you know, we're winter country we should be doing well in in winter sports and in this case at the world championships i believe thus far we are doing well so that's uh more news coming out of the yeah. uh p- paranordic skiing world and a little closer to home there's a major wheelchair wheelchair basketball events happening in toronto starting today yes there is so as i pull up my other screen here uh today uh marks the first day that Canada will be taking on um, Japan for uh, basically exhibition. And it's going to be happening at the Para Pan Am Center in Toronto. And there are various games throughout now and Saturday. Today's live stream game is 4 p.m. Eastern. Go to Wheelchair Basketball Canada's Facebook page to uh, to take that in. And uh, there's some various games. I think there's about five games in total that they'll play three of which are going to be streamed over the time period. So very cool and uh, look forward for good basketball coming. Now, Patrick Anderson, I have an interesting story and somebody wait, wait, may have seen... Wait, Brock, you got to stop for a second. Who is Patrick Anderson? Pa- Patrick, uh, Patrick Anderson is a wheelchair basketball uh, player and he was in a documentary called Standing Tall, uh, which was recently on AMI-tv uh, last Friday. And as part of the documentary, they discussed that he was uh, living in New York with his family. And because of that, he was unable to, during the pandemic, to to meet with his team during all the practices. And so they had to integrate him in different ways. And he was able to get to them before the games. And that's challenging. When you have a star player like that, that you can't integrate right away, that's that's tough to do. So the fact that Canada has been able to do that and he's been able to play uh, is a good thing. But when you've done five Paralympic Games, I think it's pretty easy to integrate yourself into a team. So that's the Parasport update. Brock, let's turn to the CFL. We're a little ways down the road from Toronto. The Hamilton Tiger Cats, the Tie Cats, have signed star quarterback Bo Levi Mitchell. Your reaction to that signing? My reaction is, wow. Uh that definitely flips the East uh, on its head. I think now you have a uh, real bona fide quarterback in the East. Uh, you know, no disrespect to the East, but it always seems that the West 
had, you know, the star quarterbacks more than the East. Uh, Bo Levi Mitchell will change that. I think you're in for good things in the uh, hammer for, um, for, for CFL football. So in the aggregate, he's probably been the best quarterback in the CFL over the last decade. There, there are players who've, who've emerged, maybe who've gotten past him for a season or two, but in the, for the most part, he was dominant with the Calgary Stampeders, has run into some injury issues. And that, that would be my one concern here that I'm flagging, Brock, with him going into this season as a player who's now into his 30s, dealing with injury issues. Sometimes in football, it's tough to bounce back for that. But this is definitely the kind of move that Hamilton makes to say, we want to go get the premier guy. We think he's still got it. They made the trade for him right around the time of the Grey Cup. So they've had lots of time for their doctors to poke and prod and hit him with little hammers on the knee and check the spine and check the hips and make sure everything's all good. So I I think this is a great signing for the Tiger Cats. And as you say, the East is typically wide open. Toronto, you know, so, so good. Montreal has been kind of lost. Ottawa has been kind of lost. So this is the kind of trade that says, we want the best quarterback. Football's a quarterback sport. Go get Bo, Le- Bo Levi Mitchell and build around him from there. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I, I you know, it, it's going to make uh, some tough get for the uh, Hamilton Tiger Cats and the tickets. If you want to go and see that, I think you're going to see, um, you know, lots of sellouts as you often do with um, um, Tim Hortons Field. Tim Tim Hortons Field. The other name whose name is on the tip of my tongue, and you'll you'll probably be able to fill fill this in. But the last real bona fide uh, quarterback was the uh, Mon- Mon- Montreal Alouettes uh, quarterback Anthony Cal- uh, Anthony, Anthony Calvillo. It was coming to me as I was saying it. Uh, and, and to me, that's the last sort of quarterback in the East as of recently that's sort of been there. And I think uh, Bo will switch that uh, coming. But we'll see how he goes with injury. But again, I will want to check him out in uh, some of the summer days because I haven't really got a, an opportunity to see him live and in person Um yet so yeah in general i need to get out to more cfl games i used to be a season ticket holder to the ottawa red blacks and since moving here uh somewhat due to a pandemic and somewhat due to the location of bmo field haven't had a chance to go down yet so this summer i'm going to make that uh, i'm going to make that a goal speaking of football fields brock there is a news report that came out yesterday that the nfl is broadly considering making neutral site games for their conference championships uh an every year thing. There was some speculation that that was going to be the case this year, or that was going to be the case this year due to some of the scheduling machinations of the Buffalo Bills and Cincinnati Bengals leading to the AFC championship game. But now there's news reports surfacing that are saying the NFL is actually considering making this a permanent fixture, both the AFC championship and the NFC championship being played at a neutral field, just like the Super Bowl. Brock, your reaction to this news story? <laughs> My reaction is... No, thank you. This is a god awful idea. Um, I I kind of understood it for this year, even though I thought there was a way we could deal with this other ways. But anyway, we, we've been down that. Yeah, road that's many that's times. ancient. That's ancient history, Brock. Let's leave that but, be. But this idea is making it a permanent thing. Uh, no, I I disagree. I, I would even say, ideally. I would love to, and I'll put the caveat here, but ideally I'd love to see the Super Bowl be at the top seed place. I understand that that's a logistical and 
financial nightmare the way they want to do the Super Bowl and make it a spectacle, and that's fine. But putting these two championship games at a neutral site, no thank you. I think it's a horrible idea by one Roger Goodell and the brasses that make these decisions. Oh, okay. I, so I, I want to, again, put some caveats here because I also think the idea is really bad. The Super Bowl, it's fine that it's a corporate event. Let the AFC and NFC Championship games continue to be for season ticket holders and fans of teams. That's what makes those games special, to have them played in home stadiums. But let, let's be clear about something. This is a news report that's deeply, deeply in speculation. And some of the wording really matters here. Because in the reporting, it was said the NFL is considering or has considered making the championship games to be in neutral sites. I think it's really important to note that factually speaking, as the NFL was considering this one-year deal, it probably came up in the meeting. Someone must have said, hey, have we ever considered doing this as a, as a full-time thing? Would anybody be interested in that? And then it probably got shouted down in the boardroom. But irrespective, when a journalist goes and contacts somebody who took notes on that, hey, have you guys ever thought about making this permanent? Well, it did come up. And then the splashy headline goes, NFL considering neutral site games. So, like, there's a bit yeah. of a journalism question here that people will take uh, a shred of a story and then sort of spit it into the NFL is absolutely going to be doing neutral site games, even though there's absolutely no evidence to suggest that's the case. Yeah, remember there was uh, that report of uh, Tom Brady suggesting that he, you know, wanted to play in the CFL, which was one of those, you know, reports that was because he played overseas. And so then that got blown out of proportion and everybody kind of jumped on that. And so, yeah, I agree. But I, even if this goes any further or gets any legs, I think it's an absolutely horrible yeah. idea. Yeah, terrible idea. I, I, I would be the first. If they actually implemented this, I'd be the first to come on here and other programs and just be screaming of this <laughs> nonsense and stupidity this decision would be. And, uh, yeah, I, I, and again, I, I think, too, you, you would be taking money out of the pockets of the markets that, are part of the NFC and AFC championship game. Like it, it's just a god awful idea. No, thank you. It can stay as a report and nothing yeah. more. I'd, I'd love to see the economic analysis that would actually tell you how much more money a neutral site game would make. Because I'm actually not convinced it would make that much more if this decision were soaked in greed, which oftentimes the NFL no, decisions but... are. Uh, but I, I would love to see what the economic analysis is because it really, on on one on, on a couple weeks' notice, I, I don't see how they would be more corporately viable. But anyway, we're not we're not economists, and I'm not taking up my calculator this early in the day, Brock. <laughs> no. <laughs> Thank you for this. We will talk to you tomorrow, and we'll go deep diving into the Toronto Raptors, who have an interesting game tonight against the Sacramento Kings, and uh, some interesting conversations heading into the NBA trade deadline. But for now, Brock, we bid you adieu. Have a nice day. You as well. That is Brock Richardson. He is the host of the Neutral Zone at the AMI Sports Desk. Mike Ross is at the AMI Weather Desk. Thank you, Dave. We will begin your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland, where there will be flurries today, about two centimeters in total. The temperature falling to minus seven, the wind chill minus 15. In Charlottetown, PEI, mainly sunny today with a high of minus six, the wind chill about minus 15. St. John, New Brunswick has a mix of sun and clouds and a high of minus four. 
Quebec City, a mix of sun and clouds, the high minus 9, the wind chill minus 25 this morning, minus 16 this afternoon. In Toronto, it'll be cloudy with snow, heavy at times, beginning near the midday. About 10 centimeters of snow coming over the next 24 hours. The temperature will be steady near zero. Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario has some clouds, some flurries, and a temperature steady near minus two, the wind chill minus seven. Let's go to Manitoba. Brandon, periods of light snow today with a high of minus 12. There is a wind chill minus of minus 28 this morning and minus 18 this afternoon. That comes with a risk of frostbite. In Regina, Saskatchewan, it'll be cloudy with a high of minus 5. The wind chill minus 12 this morning. It'll drop to minus 18 this afternoon. Let's go to Alberta. And Lethbridge, mainly cloudy. The high zero. The wind chill minus 8 this morning. Red Deer, mainly cloudy today with a few rain showers or flurries in the afternoon. Your high plus 2. Your wind chill minus 7. To Whitehorse, it'll be cloudy with a high of 6 degrees. In Kelowna, clear skies, the high plus three, the wind chill minus four this morning. And in Vancouver, a mix of sun and clouds and a high of seven. And that was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Mike. Coming up after the break, journalist John Lepke will discuss the presence of Parasport at the upcoming Canada Winter Games on Prince Edward Island. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The countdown to the Canada Winter Games is on. Prince Edward Island will play host to the Games starting next month. 20 sports will be featured across 150 events. Parasport will be included alongside their counterparts. Think sports like para-alpine skiing, para-nordic skiing, and wheelchair basketball. But what does it mean to have Parasports present at a larger event? John Lepke can offer some insight. John is a journalist and a former elite-level para-athlete. Hey, good morning, John. How are you? I'm well. How about you? Doing great. Always enjoy talking about these topics with you. John, you were present at previous Canada Games as an athlete. What role have they played in your life? Yeah. So I, I played uh, for, for context. And uh, it, when I'm a former athlete, uh, it's heavy emphasis on the former. Um, <laughs> but uh, I played at the 2011 Canada Games where Saskatchewan won silver or sorry, won bronze. And then 2015 in Prince George when we won silver. And really, um, Canada Games for me and for I think many of my parasport athletes, uh, compatriots, I suppose, is um, a, an ability to you know it's really the cycle that canada games puts you on the four-year build-up similar to what we see with uh far more elite athletes than i ever was with the paralympic games and how the cycle impacts things like social relationships and going to test events at these venues and and getting to see friends from across the country that that otherwise you you wouldn't see John, in the case of the Canada Games, it's an event that integrates Parasport alongside their counterparts. How can a major event that integrates Parasport serve athletes with disabilities? Yeah, I mean, I think in my experience of the Canada Winter Games, uh, that was done really well. I think it, my thought is that 
it, they did really well because it, it there are a limited number of sports to serve. Um, and also the Parasport events, while a lot of Canada Games events do have sort of lower age brackets, uh, wheelchair basketball is uh, 20, uh, U24 or 23 and under. So it really, um, I think that malleability of being able to be like wheelchair basketball, for example, when because it's in the winter games as opposed to uh, the summer games, um, you have things like it being the only indoor event for its one week, which means it gets good crowds. Like there are lots of scheduling things that are done and lots of conversations that are be able to have so that Parasport does get the shine at these events. Yeah, even more broadly, you alluded to it right there. When you're talking about an events like the Canada Games putting Parasport alongside uh, other sports in, in an area where there's going to be more focus because amateur sport doesn't always get the same focus that other sports do, what does that mean broadly for the Parasport movement? Yeah, you're exactly right, Dave. I think we're pretty used to playing in front of friends, family, and whoever we can drag into the gym uh, at, at the amateur level. I think it shows, uh, I think it works on two levels. I think it shows other athletes that parasport can be taken seriously. And I think it shows funders who may not always get to see what wheelchair basketball looks like. Um, for example, uh, the variety of, of skill and, and talent and funding and uh, sporting opportunities that are involved. Last week, Brock Richardson and I discussed the possibility of having the Olympics and Paralympics held simultaneously, being hosted in the same place. What do you think about that prospect? Yeah, I think I think it's one of those ideas that sounds good on paper, but doesn't actually work in practice. Because organizing any parasport event, any any disability event, I mean, we're here at AMI, is a, a logistical challenge and, and i mean that in the best way possible so i think it, it works at canada games because it's not every sport on the it's not every sport on the docket mm -hmm. it is a mm -hmm. few ones that work there are there are specific choices that are made you can with two sports with two pair of sports you can make sure that accommodations are going to be accessible but if we look at you know, the the focus that the Olympics might get versus the Paralympics, if we hold them at the same time, it's not like it's going to create, it's not like it's going to fix the inequity between the two programs. It just means, in my view, that the Paralympics would take an even further backseat and also, as we've seen in previous Paralympics, not be able to work through its own version of how to navigate the although the Paralympics likes to think of itself as apolitical, even though uh, existing <laughs> as a disabled person in and of itself is political, <laughs> not separating those programs makes it really, or sorry, yeah, not separating those programs makes it really difficult for the Paralympics to, to lean into what makes it a powerful um, event. As you say, on, on paper or as a thought, it seems like a much more, uh, it seems like a much better idea, but the logistics do become incredibly challenging. The, the one thing that I consider here though, John, is that perhaps there'd be a better notion of what shared facilities would look like amongst elite sports, 
if these were going on at the same time, just because then some of, I'm, I'm gonna use the word mainstream. I don't like using the word mainstream in regards <laughs> to, but I prefer mainstream to able-bodied sports. I think able-bodied sports sounds even worse, but there might be some huh. a better sense of where, like what an elite program and elite equipment looks like and what shared facilities could look like to better serve athletes of more abilities. I, I totally understand where you're getting from. And, and I think that there's it's twofold there. I think it, it would, I think, have an impact on the people who are, say, organizing venues or committee conversations and things like that. I think we often get this idea that athletes on both sides of the divide would get an, a, an idea of what the other one is doing. I never went to the Paralympics, but even at, at Canada Games, which is small potatoes comparatively, you are so laser focused. My coaches will laugh at me because I think at those Canada Games, I wasn't particularly laser focused. <laughs> but in theory, you're laser focused and you're only worried about your event. You know, you're thinking about sleep hygiene on the plane. You're not thinking about like, oh, I wonder what. Um, I wonder what those other athletes are doing, except for when at Canada Games you become a bit uh, patriotic about your province and you might attend one or two events, uh, particularly if you you know have a run up of just practice days. Um, but but realistically, I I think it has a lot. It's a lot more of a. It would be a lot more of a symbolic change than one that I think actually would make all that much of an impact. I, that's well put, and this is why we bring on people who have actual perspective rather than me, who just ideates here at my desk all day. Uh, John, circling back to how Parasport has influenced your life, this is a time of year when people are making goals, maybe to the point that it's exhausting the number of goals that we're making for ourselves. How did you, being an athlete, offer you some guidance in the practice of goal setting? Yeah, again, my coaches in the two sports that I play, wheelchair basketball and wheelchair rugby, will probably laugh at me and, you know, uh, uh, you know, rose-colored glasses here. But I think athletics in, in its various forms, and particularly team sports, um, teaches you about when you need to focus in. I think it teaches you about working through challenges as a team, as, as cheesy as that may sound. And I think when it comes to goal setting, you know, I it wasn't very long that I had the illusions of grandeur of being, you know, a starting athlete on the national team. Um, I think it allowed me to make connections. And the biggest thing, which has not a lot to do with goals, but has a lot to do with how I conduct myself now as a disabled freelance journalist, is... Um, Paris, I would not be at the stage that I am with my understanding of my own identity and what I know about myself to be true without Parasport. Um, you know, it's it's an environment that isn't uh, isn't known for being uh, perfectly on its p's and q's in terms of you know you're you're not going to hear often like super uh, uh, in depth conversations about uh, say person first versus identity first language. Um, but it, it, it is the space that, that taught me how to travel as a disabled person, how to understand myself as a disabled person. And now that flows into my work. I was never an elite athlete like yourself, but I was very into bodybuilding for a short period of time in my late teens and early twenties. And I'll tell you that that 
experience was something that has helped me with goal setting for the rest of my life. And the most important thing of that is, John, is tangible. Tangibility. When you're going to set a goal, you have to find a tangible way to measure it. Is this where I say cut to a clip? Uh, no, no, no. There's no clip to cut for. There's no <laughs> evidence of me oiled up uh, wearing a mankini uh, flexing for people. That was all private shows in the basement of the Cote St. Luke Shopping Center at uh, the World Gym. Uh, John, <laughs> thank you for this. I appreciate your perspective on these topics. And I appreciate you having me. Have a wonderful day. <laughs> That's John Lepke, a journalist based in Saskatoon. Coming up next, Dr. Craig Medeer will reflect on the 165th anniversary of the American Printing House for the Blind. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. back it's now with dave brown on ami tv the american printing house for the blind is celebrating their 165th birthday that's a lot of candles here to reflect on the legacy and the future of the aph is the president of the american printing house for the blind it's dr craig madir hey dr madir thank you so much for making time to be with us today we're grateful oh happy to be joining you here today dave so let's hop into the time machine and put this into perspective 1858, right. what did the beginning of the organization look like? Well, you know, you're, we are stepping back in time before Braille. So that kind wow. of frames, wow. frames that. So 1858, there was a um, small group of people who really believed that uh, people with print disabilities should have access to tactile reading material at the time, which, of course, was raised print. Um, and so gathering up support from a, a local area here in Kentucky, they actually were able to begin the process of printmaking in the basement at that time, which was the, the Kentucky School for the Blind. And uh, so very humble beginnings. Um, and uh, then, of course, we had this small interruption called the Civil War in the, in the States. And uh, when that the dust had settled on all that, the, the process began again. And then in 1879, the federal government, uh, which um, was very progressive for any government, but in 1879, the federal government of the United States said, this is an important thing. Uh, people who have print disabilities and especially people who are blind need access to educational materials that are accessible as, and this not only included raised print, but also would uh, the, the term was tactile apparatus for teaching of math and the sciences. Um, and so it, that's, those were our humble beginnings. Uh, we built on a, a site right next door to the Kentucky School for the Blind and are still here today. Uh, 165 years later. It's a remarkable history, but it's a history that involves some evolution. You mentioned that as the origins of the organization, Braille was not even a thing yet. It was, it was something totally Correct. different. How has the evolution of technology influenced the way that APH has grown over the years? Well, it, it's really, um, in the, in the world of accessibility, I always like to tell everybody uh, when, we, when we go to meetings and conferences is, is uh, glad to see the Microsofts and Google and Amazon and Apple finally showing up to the party. Uh, we, we've been at this a long time. 
But you know, some of the earliest things that APH was doing uh, was the recording of audio books. Of course, at that time we called them talking records. Uh, but this was a process started by the American Foundation for the Blind. And after a few years, American Foundation for the Blind handed that off to uh, the American Printing House and a few other facilities. And we, uh, that has been a part of our legacy. And that, of course, that has progressed all the way through everything's now digital download. But uh, so we've been in the audio audiobook business for uh, since the 30s, uh, so almost 100 years in, in that process. So, you know, that's the beauty of accessibility done right. It benefits the masses. It's not just for someone who's blind or low vision or disabled. It, it has benefit to everybody, which has spurned a lot of our other uh, spurred, not spurned, spurred a lot of our other advances in technology with the work we've been doing at APH. A lot of our work, uh, of course, is um, uh, in the area of development of apps, uh, the development of refreshable braille displays. Uh, we work with several partner agencies to make those things happen, uh, making sure that all students have equitable access uh, in the states to curriculums or, or programs that are being used within their local public schools. And uh, so it's it, it has evolved in, in many, many ways. The reach and impact on people is something that would be even difficult to quantify when we're talking about 165 years. It's tremendous the way in which you've positively influenced people's lives. But as part of this celebration, there's also some big news about the organization itself in regards to the campus and the museum. What's the big news? The big, the big news, and, and I have to give a, a lot of credit to supporters of APH as well as the, the Board of Governors for APH, our, our Board of Trustees. Uh, we have this amazing museum at the American Printing House of the Blind, which was started in the, uh, uh, the 90s. And it, it tells about the history of blindness as well as uh, the importance of education and, and adaptation. And it's a fair, it's a really fascinating uh, museum in itself. And I mean, some of the pieces that are in there, we have on loan from us the entire Helen Keller archives from the American Foundation for the Blind. So a lot of her, Helen's personal effects, her letters, correspondence with Mark Twain, her her letter uh, or telegram to the uh, uh, Hitler youth who were burning books, uh, correspondence with several presidents as well as uh, artifacts, gifts she had received from dignitaries. We have in there one of Louis Braille's original books. There's only six in oh, the world wow. today, and we are the only agency that has that book on display full-time. Uh, Stevie Wonder's piano that he played while he was a student at the Michigan uh, School for the Blind, and uh, the first dog harness. It, it just goes on and on, and it's a treasure trove. And the history is a great teacher, but we wanted to do something different. We want to create a museum that is the most inclusive museum in the world. So that means when you come through, and, and the purpose of this museum is basically to attack a lot of these ideas about disability and ability. We want to demystify blindness. Blindness is, is one of those disabilities that really, you know, if you if you put that out there and said, hey, you could, you could choose to lose use of your legs or use of your eyes, which in a lot of people would say, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to lose my legs before my eyes just because it's 
it conjures up some some really dark images mm. and and we know that that's built on myth you know life doesn't end when your sight doesn't work um the world doesn't shut down. Opportunities don't evade you. Hope doesn't go away, but we have a lot of work to do. Uh, and so we are going to create this museum experience that demystifies blindness and low vision and, and really invites everybody, regardless of ability, to become part of uh, a community of allies, of advocates that helps move legislation, that helps create opportunity for, for people. So when the way this museum is being designed is it doesn't matter if you come in and, and you are uh, blind, if you are deaf blind, if you are low vision, if you are using a mobility device, if you are sensory impaired, this experience will be meaningful and, and will be, um, you, you will get the full experience as well as any person who is fully sight biased oh, who has wow. full use of their sight and they come into that museum but we want to make sure that this uh our tagline at aph is welcome everyone we want to make sure that this museum screams that so th from the time you you get out of get off the bus or get out of a car and you step onto the campus this museum will begin to help you change your ideas of of what it means to to uh have a challenge or such as sight loss and and, and what that means. It, it's been one of the really neat developments over the last couple of years to see museums becoming more accessible and inclusive. It sounds like there's lots of best practices for you and your colleagues to pull from. What are the next steps in regards to the museum and even a possible opening date? Well, we, uh, we will be we first, of course, in order to open something new, we've got to shut down what is currently right, existing. Right. So we will, we will run our current museum up through uh, mid-June, probably June 30th of this year. And then at that point, we will have a reverse ribbon cutting where we kind of shutter the museum and pack away the archives. Um, and then the, the breaking of the, the, the ground on the front of the building. And uh, because this will be a this will be a huge new addition to the building that will be both very pleasing to see, but very uh, interesting to explore and um uh, I, I, I'm, we're just excited. We really think this yeah. is just going to be a, a wonderful addition, um, not only for the city of Louisville, but also for the entire field. Um, and, it, and it will carry a lot of significance. My senior producer, Andrika Delanarol, has a very, very optimistic question here, and I love her optimism here. If you were to look ahead, 165 years from now. I know, so, so optimistic. Yeah. Where do yeah. you where do you hope to see uh, the blind and partial sighted community and the kind of services and changes that uh, that we might get to experience and encounter? Yeah, so, so I'm I'm speaking from the position of someone who is sight biased. I wear wear glasses, but you you know I have my sight. But I've been in this field for for 38 years, and I marvel at what has happened in 38 years. But where I hope and what I hope, and you know, some of this isn't 165 years out. All it takes is uh, real intentionality on the part of developers, designers. If we design everything universally, and I am talking everything from cars to homes, uh, to computer programs, to tablets, if everything 
was designed universally so it is fully accessible and things have made a lot of progress. Uh, the world would just be a much better place. So 165 years from now, I fully expect um, one, in a perfect world, I would love to say APH is out of business. We no longer need to exist or we don't no longer need to exist in our current form because 90% of what we do here is making the educational field and making the world accessible. That's what we do, accessibility. Um, so if the world gets it right, we should not be needed anymore, which means there are no barriers. Uh, I, you know, every person who's blind, low vision will have the vehicle of their choice. You don't need, you don't need eyes to, to drive. It, you know, it will get you where you need to be. Uh, everything will have a tactile haptic interface. So not only will I be getting audio feedback, but I can actually put my hands into space. Think of a Star Trek hologram or, or, or holodeck, uh, but that world can be operational with real field, haptic response, sensory response. And so all that information will be available at my fingertips. Uh, the time for for uh, information to fingertips will be uh, so minimal you won't be able to measure it. Mm -hmm. Everything will be available. There will not need you will not need agency to to prepare something so that you can accomplish uh, a daily task or a work related item. It will just be. So that's the world. I mean, it's utopia. I, I know that, and but I think. In a lot of ways, what I've been able to witness over the last, I, I mentioned during my career, is that I, I think we, we've seen some real growth in society. And, and you know, uh, historically, society ebbs and flows. Uh, I think that's the beauty of society is the fact that um, Congress, United States, and, and for all our, our plus and minuses and where we're at right now with a divided Congress, um, but back in 1879, people had the forethought. They said, you know what we need to do? You know what the right thing to do is for mankind? We need to set aside funding to make sure that blind people have equitable access to education. Mm -hmm. That's almost unheard of. 1879, that is, I, you know, I, I sometimes wonder, could we get that level of agreement today? Oh, um, but you see it happen in fits and starts. So it's, it's I don't think it's, not possible, but I think it's uh, as we grow and evolve socially as human beings, at times uh, we we realize that action needs to be taken on on um, on social movements, and we see some progress, we see some growth, and some uh, awareness, and then we kind of detract for a while. But then you know something else will come to mind, and it will spur on the next wave of that. So I'm hoping in 165 years. We will go on through several iterations and that, um, like I said, maybe a company like ours no longer needs to exist at that point in time. Progress is not always linear, but nonetheless, we really appreciate the work that you and your colleagues are doing, not just in recent history, but for this long 165-year history and all the work you're doing moving forward. APH.org to learn more about the organization as well as the DOT experience that we were talking about, the museum, and to celebrate this historic birthday. Dr. Madir, thank you for making time to be with us today. And uh, I know it's not your birthday, but happy birthday nonetheless. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. It's a pleasure being on with you. That's the president of APH, Dr. Craig Medeer, talking to you from Louisville, Kentucky. And again, APH.org to learn more, APH.
Org. Coming up after the break, you'll find out what's coming up on Kelly and Rumia. And Mike Ross has a question about weather reports. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Let's look ahead to this afternoon when Kelly and Rumya hit the airwaves at 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv and AMI-audio. Rumya is the co-host of that show. It's right in the name. Rumya, what's coming up on the show today? But just give me your top item because we're super tight for time. Okay, uh, we're talking to Krista Couture about the CBC Arts original How to Lose Everything. This is streaming this Friday starting on CBC, so we're going to talk to her about that. I'm very excited. Very good. That's a friend of the network, Krista Couture, 2 p.m. Mm-hmm. Eastern time on AMI-tv and AMI-audio. Five minutes on the clock here. It's roundtable time. Nazreen Abdel-Majid is standing by. Mike Ross, you have a question about weather speculation. So, Dave, we've got another snowmageddon heading towards Toronto, (laughs) and uh, I say that very much tongue-in-cheek because so many times over the last several years, these projected huge snowstorms just never really came to fruition. So, I want to know, number one, how do you react to the reports now, like every couple of weeks, it seems, about another huge snowstorm coming? Number two, once that report is issued... And there actually is snow coming. How do you guys prepare for said storm? Whether it be your clothing preparation, whether you're thinking about transportation, whether you're thinking about snow removal where you live. I want to know how you guys approach a big upcoming snowstorm. But first, tell me how you sort of deal with the news and the the constant bombardment on TV and radio about snowmageddons. (laughs) Mike, I read a report in the regional news earlier this week for uh, snowmageddon in Nova Scotia and a a warning from Environment Canada for anywhere from 5 to 25 centimeters. And it really got me thinking, 5 centimeters? Do we need to give a warning for 5 centimeters? But it really speaks to the range by which we will give warnings now to give people a heads up. I take them with a grain of salt, if you will, if you would sort of pardon the uh, stretch of pun, I keep the boots ready. I keep my uh, I keep my house. I keep my uh, winter coat ready. I try not to worry about it too much, but I'm definitely checking the door, uh, checking out the window before my walk in in the morning. Nizreen Abdel Majid, what about you? As you know, um, I'm all about fashion rather than keeping warm. So when it comes to these warnings, okay, that's when I actually use a proper jacket, a proper scarf, proper boots. But other days I'm out here with, you know, heeled boots, you know, lighter jacket, no scarf or anything like that. So I do uh, look at the warnings as a sign of, okay, take, take it seriously, wear some layers. Uh, Nizreen, you typically do the work from home life. Ramya has been doing the Dave Brown life of schlepping back and forth uh, to the studios here at AMIHQ. So Ramya, I'm getting the sense that you probably, even if they don't always come to fruition, have to be a little more conscious of these warnings. Yeah, I don't take the warnings uh, to heart maybe as much as I should, but definitely in terms of preparedness, I'm always wearing my thick winter jacket. I got my boots out in like early November because if you're trekking, if a white cane user like me, um, you can't really just leave it up to the the stars and the sky. I, I always have to be prepared. And so the boots are always out. The cane with the giant ball tip is always out and the winter jacket's always out because who knows how long I'll be waiting for that bus. 
Mike, typically you work from home in the mornings, but you have a lot of commitments downtown in the uh, later parts of the day, uh, especially on uh, game days for the Toronto Maple Leafs. So I imagine even if they don't come to fruition a ton, you still have to be mindful of these warnings. A hundred percent I do. I mean, I've already planned my alternate route home tonight to avoid the highway because my experience there is that the crews uh, are working hard to clear as much roadway as they can. But, you know, 11 o'clock at night, oftentimes when the snow has been coming down for about five or six hours, the highways still aren't cleared. So it's tough driving. Uh, so I often will even make the arrangement of taking public transportation to get downtown because there's a commuter train that drops you're right off right there at the arena so it's super comfortable it's super convenient the only downside is on the ride home the fact that it's a bit of a milk run and it takes about an hour to get home uh, but i'd rather be safe i'd rather uh, go door to door in that convenience than than anything else and and transportation honestly guys when i was thinking about you guys and this types uh, of storm you know i really was curious about transportation for you guys and how you deal with that because it does uh, uh, you know, when there is a lot of snow on the ground, it makes it really difficult for you to mm. get around. I, I don't want to beat the dead horse here, Mike, but I got caught up in some of that uh, via rail trouble over the holidays due to storms. Mm. And, the, and, I, and I expressed this uh, with a certain sense of vulnerability. Um, those are moments where I truly do feel disabled when the ability to travel independently via public transit or mass transit, transit goes away. Those are the moments that hit me a little bit harder. So I, I appreciate you identifying that. We've only got about a minute left here, but Nazreen, when you think about the scenario Mike paints there, where does that make you consider disability and transportation in regards to weather? I think it's so true. And even for me, um, I was a person with uh, a rheumatoid arthritis. It does take a toll on me. Um, I wake up very stiff and it's really hard to transport or even leave the house or get up from bed sometimes. So it does, uh, it it gets a little harder around this time of year and especially for these, like uh, this tough time for the weather. Ramya, I know it's a very abstract question, but we've only got about 20 seconds for your response mm -hmm. in regards to these moments perhaps making us more cognizant of a disability identity. Absolutely. I think that we live in a very seasonal uh, environment where you can go from, you know, amazing weather to really bad. But door to door service for paratransit users is very appreciated this time of year. That's well put. I always appreciate how concise you guys can be. Mike, thank you for filling in for Alex today. I know we're talking to you a little bit later in the week. Have a great day. Thank you. We'll see you Friday. Nazreen, we'll talk to you later. Uh, have yourself a wonderful day. Thank you, you too. And Ramya, maybe I'll see you in the building, maybe not. We'll see how fast I make my exit. All right, Dave. <laughs> That's Nazreen Abdelmajid, Ramya Amuthan, and Mike Ross. That's all the time we have for the show today. We'll be back again tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Eastern. Until then, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Red Sale, inviting you to download the latest episode of My Life in Books, where internationally acclaimed authors discuss their lives, their work, and three books that have resonated with them. That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts.